the Christian life is a constant flow of new resolutions um, as we commit and then recommit things to the Lord. You hear things that you, you've already said, yes, I, I believe that, I'm trying to do that, but you hear it and you go, oh, you know, you kind of recommit. So that's just the Christian life. And so I have to confess to you that New Year's resolutions for me has always been a bit of a conundrum because my mind, and this is not a condemnation. If you have New Year's resolutions, good for you, keep them. But for me, it's always been like a mental conundrum because I thought the idea of waiting for New Year's to act on something God wants me to do always seemed a bit weird. So uh, for me, a New Year's message or the first message I preached every year has always been difficult for me. But then Many years ago, I was praying and, and one year, and the Lord put it on my heart and said, well, why don't you, instead of talking about like new resolutions or whatever, why don't you instead remind the congregation that we are, use this time to remind the congregation that we're living for a kingdom that's coming and not for the world as we see it now. And so it, that kind of morphed into this tradition we have at our church that the first Sunday sermon I do, Sunday morning sermon I do is a prophecy update each year. Um, you might be saying, what is a prophecy update? Um, well, 27% of the Bible is prophecy. Some of it fulfilled, some of it unfulfilled, but that's a large chunk. So while we certainly can't cover all of that in one Sunday teaching, what a prophecy update seeks to do is look at a few of the things the Bible says about the future and how those things apply to us today. So that's what our goal is this morning. So with that in mind, let's turn to one of Jesus's key teachings on the end times in Matthew chapter 24. Now, I do want to warn you, I'm going to be covering a lot of territory today, so there'll be a lot of Scripture references I'll be making, but if you want to kind of keep up, you can be in Matthew 24, you can be in Daniel 7, 1 Thessalonians 5, and Revelation 6. Matthew 24... Daniel 7, 1 Thessalonians 5, and Revelation 6. There are way more passages that are prophetic, but that's just kind of the main text I'll be moving to today. Matthew 24, Daniel 7, 1 Thessalonians 5, and Revelation 6. So Matthew 24, the context here is that Verse 1 tells us Jesus went out and departed from the temple, so he's in the temple, and as he's leaving the temple, it says his disciples came, for him, came to him for two, or for the purpose of showing him the buildings of the temple. Now, when it says the buildings of the temple, there was, I mean, all sorts of construction in that area. If you go to Israel today and you look up on the Temple Mount, there's nothing. Everything's been thrown down like Jesus predicted. But there's all sorts of structures around it that they've dug up as well. And many of these structures were incredibly ornate. One of the reasons that every stone was unturned when the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD is because fire broke out in Jerusalem before they attacked. That's a whole different story. But fire broke out, and what the, there was gold plating on the, every stone of the temple. And so it, it started to melt and go in between the cracks, and so the soldiers trying to get to it fulfilled Jesus' prophecy by leaving no stone unturned of this massive structure that King Herod had built. So they're like oohing and eyeing over the, the, the building and the ornateness and all the jewels that were placed, the gems and stuff that were placed into the, the structure. And Jesus responds to them by saying in verse 2, 
Do you not see all these things? Verily I say unto you that there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. That rocked their world. And so Jesus doesn't elaborate. He just keeps leaving, going about his business, leaves the temple mount, leaves the city. And when they get to the Mount of Olives, he sits down and, you know, they're kind of stewing that whole walk. It's a good walk. I've walked down from the Mount of Olives to to Jerusalem. That's a good-sized walk. And they've been stewing on this. And finally, as he sits down, they're like, we got questions. And so they ask three questions in particular. As he sat again, verse 3 tells us, on the Mount of Olives, or sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us, and here's the first question, when shall these things be? When will the temple be destroyed like this? Number two, what shall be the sign of your coming, his return? And number three, what shall be the sign of the end of the world? And Jesus spends Matthew 24, 25, and 26 answering all three of those questions. So this is like a a bedrock or a foundational passage when we're looking at the end times. Again, we're not going to cover all three of those chapters. We don't have time for that. But I want to look at some things from the first 13 verses that have stuck out to me as I was praying this year. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For, this is when the end will come. This is when you know it's the end. All those things don't mean the end, but this is when. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginnings of sorrows. This is the beginning of the tribulation. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and they shall kill you, and you shall be hated for all nations for my name's sake. These are all events recorded in Revelation 6 with the opening of the seals. Verse 10, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Verse 11, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity, or literally lawlessness, shall abound, the love of many shall, King James says, wax cold, but literally it means be caused or be made to grow cold. But, in contrast to those who give in to the false prophets, he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. I want to highlight two concepts that Jesus brings up here in verses 11 through 13. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus says one mark of the end times is that false prophets will capitalize on a time of abounding lawlessness to diminish our agape love. That is not, the word here for love is not phileo, just like the love, like anybody can have for a person, but this is the love that God has for us, the love that Christians are supposed to have. This is referring to us. False prophets, as the end is coming, getting close, they will capitalize on a time of abounding lawlessness lawlessness to diminish not the world's love, but our agape love. That's a marker. The second thought I want to highlight here is that Jesus says believers, when they start to see these things happening, they need to focus on enduring. They need to focus on enduring to the end. Now, I bring this up because if you attend a prophecy conference or a prophecy update, many of those things, unfortunately, are falsely labeled. True prophecy stems from God's revealed Word. It's not about my predictions about the future, all right? Prophecy updates and prophecy conferences, sadly, today are far more about the crystal ball of Christianity, all right? 
We are not witches or soothsayers or fortune tellers, all right? I'm not up here to reveal something to you that, like, God spoke to me. That's not, well, I am, but it's because He spoke it right here, all right? It's open book for you guys, too. He said it to you as well. There, this is not about that, and unfortunately, because that truth is ignored, many prophecy conferences or prophecy podcasts or prophecy updates these days, they leave those who attend or listen scared, angry, and confused. That is never the result of the gift of prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, it tells us that when the gift of prophecy is in operation, it says this, but he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. When the true gift of prophecy is in operation, all right, it either builds us up, stirs us up, or cheers us up. That is the goal when the gift of prophecy is in operation. And surely, the Scripture is prophetic, and therefore, that should be the result when we study the prophetic elements of Scripture. Now, in contrast to building us up, stirring us up, and cheering us up, false prophecies and false prophets use us up. That is what they do. They seek to use you. So you've got to pay to come to their conferences. You've got to pay to subscribe to their channel, or you've got to pay to get their stuff. They use you up. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter, giving a wonderful, I mean horrible, but very clear description of what a false prophet is and what their characteristics are, he says in 2 Peter 2.1, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false prophets, false teachers among you. He doesn't say false teachers out there. He says among you. People who claim to speak for the Lord, claim to teach the Bible, claim to represent the Lord, they're going to be among us and they'll be false teachers. And they shall secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many, not a few weird people who have weird ideas, but many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. In other words, there's going to be people out there claiming to speak for Christ, seeking to bring in these other ideas that are not in the Bible, and they're going to cause many to follow them, and the world who we're supposed to reach with the gospel instead will speak evil of the way of truth because of what they're doing. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words, the word there means with deceptive words, they will exploit you make merchandise of you, the King James says. They turn you into a sale. Our goal this morning is to be strengthened in our faith, to be stirred up to share the gospel with unbelievers, and to be cheered up in a time of lawlessness. That's our goal. Our goal here this morning, I'm not here to tell you who the Antichrist is, because I don't know, and the Bible makes it clear that nobody will until the rapture has happened. It says, then will the man of sin be revealed. God's not going to allow him to be revealed until we're gone. So after that happens, then he'll be revealed. There are many fruitless exercises and wastes of time out there that people are 
investing a lot of time in putting together and other people investing lots of times to listen. If they just read a Bible, they would go, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing that, wasting my time doing that. Our goal this morning is to be strengthened in our faith, stirred up to share the gospel with unbelievers and to be cheered up in a time of lawlessness. Sometimes, you know, when this time comes around every year and some people are like, is the prophecy update next week? And they're all excited. And then others are like, is the prophecy update next week? Because, I mean, it's, it's too much to handle. But I, I get it. You know, some people get excited. Some people are kind of like, can we just get back to First John? But I would say this. I do think it's worth taking time, something that is worth taking time, is to fortify our faith so that we don't stop running our race before we reach the finish line. To take heed to Jesus' exhortation in, about end time stuff, which is endure to the end. Hang in there, persevere. I do think it's worth taking time to examine some of the deceptions that are out there that are seeking to diminish our agape love. Because both of those things, keeping us, trying to keep us from enduring to the end and trying to diminish our agape love, both of those are part of what the Bible calls the mystery of iniquity. Now, what is the mystery of iniquity? It's an interesting phrase. The Bible uses it just a couple of times. The mystery of iniquity, for lack of a better way of explaining, is the Bible uses that phrase to refer to Satan's plan, all right? We have God's sovereign plan, which nothing can alter, but the enemy has a plan too. Now, our enemy's plan, the Bible tells us, is always at work, but here's the key component. He does not have control over the full implementation of his plan. He doesn't know when God's going to allow him to fully implement his plan. So he's constantly moving forward. That's why we read in Matthew 24 when Jesus says, listen, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and all these things, don't be troubled, okay? That, the enemy's always at work, and my father, the only way that it can actually come to the end is if my father goes, it's time for the end. So we don't need to be troubled by these things. If you're going to listen to a podcast or a preacher or go to a conference and they are freaking you out, that is not the Lord, because we don't need to be troubled by these things. If you ever hear someone who says, things like this have never happened in the world. First off, they're a poor student of history. Secondly, that is not the Lord. Because Jesus himself said, listen, don't be troubled by these things. The enemy's always at work. He's always trying to bring his plan, plan to pass. And so we can find numerous times in history when we see these things starting to happen, and the Lord just goes, nope, and then the enemy has to start all over. There are many times in history that could have full well been the stage being set for the end, but God can step in at any moment and say, not yet, wrecking all of the enemy's plans, forcing him to start over. Now, with that in mind, the Bible says we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices, so that just because we don't need to be troubled by these things doesn't mean we can't understand what our enemy's trying to do. And so when we look at the scriptures and it describes this plan of the enemy, it has many prongs to it. For example, one of the things that he wants to do, he's seeking to bring about, is the elimination of God's people, Israel. That is one of the things he's constantly trying to do. And it's why you will find periods of history where anti-Semitism and you know, anti-Israelism is, you know, it rises up and God's people get persecuted more than any other people. I, I read an article just Friday that horrified me. 
And it was an article about in the United States just asking questions to people about their thoughts on Jewish people in our community, not people in Israel. Over 40% of people that answered said they're uncomfortable being next to a Jewish person. Yeah, that's what I did, Jeremy. I was like, am I reading this? Like, like you, I grew up, okay? I grew up, and the phrase Hitler, Nazism, World War II were all abominations that, like, we thought to ourselves, never again. That name, that movement, that time, either gets thrown around very casually or is completely ignored these days. I never would have thought, I, I should know better because we always forget our history. I would never have thought to hear some of these things. The same article described the idea that, I think it was 61% of Americans believe that Jewish people are privileged, selfish, and they care more about their Israel than they do the United States. I didn't know what to even think. I, I didn't even put it in my notes because I was just so horrified by what I was reading. So one of those prongs is he wants to eliminate Israel. Another of his prongs is he wants to deceive people into following his counterfeit Messiah, laying the groundwork for the rise of the Antichrist. Another of his prongs is he likes to, he try, he's going to promise peace but bring war and destruction. He's going to lay this peace idea before us where we all have hope and we all look to it and go, yeah, this is just what we need to do, but at the same time, he's bringing along war and destruction. Another prong is he wants to get people to worship him. I don't, I don't know if you've been following it at all, but in the United States in particular, the rise of Satanism is, is absurd. And then lastly, another prong is he wants to destroy believers, the church, the body of Christ. Now again, we could spend multiple Sundays looking at all these, these prongs, and, and we still wouldn't have enough time. So one of these prongs I want to focus on this morning One of these prongs requires two opposites to coexist, the preaching of peace, but lots of war and destruction. But the Bible consistently says this is what will happen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you turn there with me, in the first three verses, Paul explains that this will be the case in the end. He writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 1, but of the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need that I write unto you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. A little aside here. First Thessalonians is written to a group that Paul only spent four weeks with at most. Four weeks because of persecution. He, that's all the time he could spend there. You would think if you only had, when you first got somewhere, that you'd bring up the most important topics. Apparently, giving them a thorough understanding of end times was an important topic. I know sometimes we hear these things and, and maybe we think it's too much or I can't understand it. Or like, that's the most common thing I hear about Revelation. People say, I can't understand it, to which I would say, try harder. <laughs> I don't mean that in a, in a rude way. I'm saying, I think 
if we would take the same time maybe like to dig into Ephesians and try to understand some of the things there that instead of just being put off by the daunt, you know, how daunting revelation can be, I promise you that you'll find good application there. It's not so complex. If you just take it straight up as it is, there's lots of good application and lots of good lessons there. You don't even need to have somebody to tell you what it means. You can read it and you can get things out of it. And the more you do, the more you'll get out of it. Anyway, he says, I taught you all this stuff. You already know this stuff. Verse 3, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The preaching of peace is going to be prevalent during the time of the end. And so in light of that, I would like to share a video of Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Gutierrez, his New Year message for 2023. He delivered it on December 28th of 2022. But if we could play that video now, please. Every new year is a moment of rebirth. We sweep out the ashes of the old year and prepare for a brighter day. In 2022, millions of people around the world literally swept out ashes. From Ukraine to Afghanistan, to the Democratic Republic of the Congo and beyond, people left the ruins of their homes and lives in search of something better. Around the world, 100 million people were on the move, fleeing wars, wildfires, droughts, poverty, and hunger. In 2023, we need peace now more than ever. Peace with one another, through dialogue to end conflict. Peace with nature and our climate to build a more sustainable world. Peace in the home, so women and girls can live in dignity and safety. Peace on the streets and in our communities with the full protection of all human rights. Peace in our places of worship with respect for each other's beliefs. And peace online, free from hate speech and abuse. In 2023, let's put peace at the heart of our words and actions. Together, let's make 2023 a year when peace is restored to our lives, our homes and our worlds. During December, we talked about the good news that brings comfort and joy when we studied the angel's announcement to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. The Secretary General mentions peace so many times in that video that his message carries a similar tone of good news if the nations will just listen to his words. But I would suggest and offer that his message is missing one very important thing. Do you remember that interesting stanza in God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen? Now to the Lord sing praises, all you within this place, and with true love and brotherhood each other now embrace. This holy tide of Christmas all others doth deface. That strange line at the end of a happy carol Part of the news that brought comfort and joy at Jesus' birth was the announcement that the angel made saying, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Literally, that phrase means on earth peace toward the men who are his beloved. Through the birth of Christ, God was declaring that he wanted peace with all men, all men who are dear and precious to him even though we have rebelled against him. 
There was one very absent message of peace in the Secretary General's speech. We need peace with God. Apparently we can make peace with some force of nature that exists, but we don't need to make peace with God. God's message is very different than the message of peace preached by the enemy. And don't get me wrong. I'm not disparaging some of the things that he says in there. It's good to dialogue during a conflict instead of taking up arms. It's right to enable women and girls to live in dignity and safety. It's good for there to be freedom from crime and war in our communities and our places of worship. But we cannot put peace, no matter how much he might say we need to, we cannot put peace at the heart of our words and actions. We cannot carry out these other peaceful things in a meaningful way while at the same time defacing the good news of Jesus Christ. We can't. We can't truly seek peace unless we make peace with God first. And so I agree with what the Secretary General said. We do need peace now more than ever, but with the Lord first. Otherwise, it is just words that will walk side by side with even more war and even more destruction, just like the enemy plans. I, as a young Christian, had a misunderstanding that is very common. I find it within the church about the great tribulation, the seven years where God is pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. I had a misunderstanding that there will be three and a half years of peace where the entire world is uniting under this antichrist benevolent rule that will then all of a sudden be followed by three and a half years of all-out war when the antichrist tries to force the world to worship him. But the Bible does not teach that anywhere. If you look at Revelation chapter 6, as it describes the beginning of this seven-year period, we see the very first thing that happens is the Antichrist rises to power. In Revelation 6 verse 1, John says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four living creatures saying, Come and see. And I saw, John says, and behold, there was a white horse. And he that sat on the horse, he had a bow, no arrows, so he's going to try to conquer through peaceful means. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. He's going to speak peaceful words, but he's going to end up seeking to conquer. Verse 3, look at what happens right after the Antichrist rises to power and seeks to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was, this one's red. And power was given to this horse, the rider of the horse, to him that sat thereon, to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. The Antichrist is not going to rise to power during a time of peace. He is going to rise to power during a time of world conflict. Things are not going to be just fine and dandy when he comes to power. When he comes to power, there's going to be a lot of conflict on the globe. And he will just be one leader of one powerful entity during that time. In Daniel chapter 7, if we turn there, spend just a few moments looking at some things in this prophecy... Daniel reaffirms through this vision that he has that this is how the scene will be when the Antichrist comes onto the scene. Now, I have to preface what I'm about to teach this morning by saying that if you listen to other good Bible teachers, 
you, they might look at Daniel 7 a little differently than I am this morning. The traditional viewpoint is that Daniel 7 is just kind of a recapitulation of everything in Daniel 2. The dream Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue with the head of gold and then the the chest of silver and the the waistline of bronze and then the legs of iron, referring to the progression of history of Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece and then to the Roman Empire, that this is now just a recapitulation of that and, and that these four beasts that arrive onto the scene are those four kingdoms. I do not agree with that. I, again, these are good Bible teachers, so I'm not trying to disparage them. I do not agree with that because there's too much in the text that leads me to think otherwise. I believe that what Daniel is seeing a vision of is the four world powers that will be on the scene at the end. And he explains this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had, dream, had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. And he wrote the dream and he told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, different one from another. In other words, four beasts arise out of the turbulent sea at the same time. They don't arise in order. They're described in order, but they don't arise in order. They're there at the same time. And he explains that they come onto the world during a time of turbulence, conflict. In Daniel 7, verse 17, the angel is now explaining the vision to Daniel, and he says, these great beasts, which are four, are four kingdoms which shall arise out of the earth. One of these kingdoms will eventually be led by the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, the angel continues his explanation. Verse 23, thus he said, the angel, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be different from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise." And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak blasphemous words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change times and laws, and they shall be given unto his hand until a time and times and a dividing of time. In other words, three and a half years. So, what we see here then is that the Antichrist will arise when there are other powerful kingdoms there and he will seek to conquer them and bring a one-world rule into our, our society. Now, one of these four kingdoms is described in a way that interests me, giving current events. The second beast is described in Daniel 7, verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second. He was like to a bear. And this thing that looked like a bear raised itself up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they, we don't know who they is, they said thus unto it, the bear, arise and devour much flesh. In other words, you're not done yet. When the turbulent times of the Antichrist arise, this kingdom described here is in the final process of devouring something. In other words, its devouring process starts before the Antichrist comes onto the scene. It's in the final process of devouring not just something, but three somethings. 
And it won't be done searching for prey because someone commands it to rise up and devour much more flesh. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into why I believe this is Russia. The bear is always costly as simple in ancient times and in modern times of Russia. You can listen to my teaching on Daniel 7 where I go into that in more detail if you'd like. But even without that connection that I would make, we already know from Ezekiel 38 and 39 that just before the Great Tribulation, Russia is going to lead a coalition of nations to invade Israel. Now, how do we know that? Well, when Israel returned from Babylon, nothing like Ezekiel 38 and 39 happened. In fact, Russia and these other nations that are described weren't even very powerful when Israel came back to their homeland. But Ezekiel tells us it won't be in his day, it would be in the latter days. Ezekiel 38, 8 says, after many days you shall be visited. In the latter years you, Russia, shall come into the land that is brought back from the sword, Israel. Ezekiel 38, 16, and you shall come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days. Ezekiel tells us it's about the end. But even more so, we get down to verse 29 of Ezekiel 39, and Ezekiel explains something that God hasn't been doing for almost 2,000 years. In Ezekiel 39, 29, God says to his people Israel, neither will I hide my face anymore from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, says the Lord God. That is telling to me. Because in Acts 2, verses 16 and 17, it makes it clear that during the time of the church, God is pouring out His Spirit upon all flesh, Jew and Gentile, not just the nation of Israel. We know that God right now is using the church which consists of both Jews and Gentiles, that that is His vehicle to get the gospel out. But either right before or right after this invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39, the church is going to be gone because God will then working exclusively through his people, Israel, again, to reach the world for his kingdom. Now, as you read through Ezekiel 38 and 39, Ezekiel 38, 3 and 4 tells us that this idea to invade Israel is not something that's just in their head. It says that God's going to put a hook in their jaw and pull them down to invade Israel. Now, Daniel 7, 5 tells us clearly that Russia is instructed by someone unnamed there, I think it's the Lord though, to not be content with what it has conquered so far. And so that means that prior to the Great Tribulation, whenever that will be, we or whoever comes after us is going to see a Russia that is successfully invading other nations, but not being satiated by it. It's not enough. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, we all know that Russia invaded the Ukraine in February of 2022. Feels like more than just 11 months ago, doesn't it? But it was just last year. But what a lot of people don't realize is that's the third invasion Russia has made in recent years. In 2014, Russia annexed Crimea. In 2014, they invaded Donbas. They have been crunching on ribs for almost nine years. In a speech to young entrepreneurs, engineers, and scientists on June 9th of last year, Vladimir Putin told that group, I quote, there is no in-between, no intermediate state. A country is either sovereign or it is a colony. 
Peter the Great waged the Great Northern War for 21 years, which, by the way, he sees himself as a new Peter the Great. Peter the Great waged the Great Northern War for 21 years, and on the face of it, he was at war with Sweden because he was trying to take something away from it. But he was not taking away anything. He was returning to Russia what was rightfully hers. Then he says this, clearly it has fallen to our lot today to return and reinforce as well. And if we operate on the premise that these basic values constitute the basis for our existence, that it's our, the basis of our existence is to rule and not be ruled, then we will certainly succeed in achieving our goals. Vladimir Putin sees the Russian people, the Russian nation, the Russian culture as a ruling one, a nation destined to rule colonies, not be ruled and become a colony. It is their lot. It is the basis of their existence, and seeing themselves that way is the only way they'll be successful. Just a week after this meeting, on June 16th of last year, the Russian parliament floated a bill to nullify recognition of Lithuania's sovereignty. Lithuania was the first region to declare their independence from the Soviet Union in 1990. This was what he said, I quote, we, the parliament, are the successors of the USSR. We have the right to annul the decisions of the Soviet Union when it's essential for us here and now. Now, again, I'm not predicting what Russia will do, but I'm pointing out that it's clear that their current leader and some of their legislators are actively working to restore a Russian empire. And at some point, they are going to turn their eyes on Israel. So what is the hook that might bring them down? Well, I, I have been for years been fascinated by this idea of what could Israel have that these bigger nations would want. Now, Israel is a leader in technology. They're one of the leading exporters of grain in the world. That's crazy when you think about it. They have devised, because of their, the region is so dry, they've devised so many innovative methods and technologies to create food there and stuff. It, it's just they're, they're leading the way in all these things. But since 2004, Israel has invested heavily in becoming an energy-independent nation, and you can understand why. When everyone surrounds you is, the re- is where the source of energy comes from, or oil nations, and they all hate you, then you might want to become energy-independent because they can always hold that over you. Well, in the last 10 years, Israel has invested heavily in drilling or discovering oil fields in the Mediterranean off their west coast. And they have brought in revenues of almost 10 billion shekels since then. In the first half of 2022, Israel's natural gas production surged by 22% as the government plans to ramp up exports that will make their way to Europe, who Europe is currently facing their worst energy crisis in decades. Why? Hmm, because of Russia. On September 12th, while in Berlin, Germany, Former Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid said, we, I quote, we are going to be part of the effort to replace Russian gas in Europe. Now, that plan has faced numerous setbacks. They wanted to build a a pipeline going from Israel all the way up to Greece and transport the oil that way. 
It also faced a setback when Lebanon said, well, that's in our maritime land area, our sea zone, basically. That oil belongs to us. Hezbollah even threatened to attack Israel's existing gas fields if Israel started drilling any of these new fields. But then one of the wildest things happened. On October 27th, Lebanon signed a deal setting maritime, clear maritime borders between Israel and Lebanon. Now, why is that crazy? Lebanon doesn't even acknowledge that Israel is a nation. They still don't. And yet they somehow signed a treaty recognizing a border. Following the signing of the treaty, Lapid reiterated afterwards, I quote, we will become a major supplier of natural gas to Europe at a time when the world is in desperate need. Now, newly elected Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is very critical of the agreement because he thinks that they gave up too much, but he has stated on record he will honor it as long as Lebanon keeps their part of the deal. Part of the way Russia has handled the sanctions Europe's brought against them for the invasion of the Ukraine is that they have suspended oil sales to Europe, which is why Europe's facing an energy crisis. I cannot imagine that Russia will be excited about having all that undone by a little tiny country in the Middle East, especially when Russia has a massive military force right next door to Israel in Syria. Things have gotten tense between Israel and Russia. On January 3rd, this is just a few days ago, former chief rabbi of Moscow, Pinkas Goldschmidt, warned that Russian Jews should leave Russia or they will face markedly rising anti-Semitism. He served, this guy, served as Moscow's chief rabbi from 1993 until last year. But he resigned and he left Russia in March after refusing to accommodate a request from Russian state officials to publicly support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This was his quote. I resigned because to continue as chief rabbi of Moscow would be a problem for the community because of the repressive measures taken against dissidents. As a result, Israel, of these repressive measures, Israel has seen a 400% increase in immigration from Russia in 2022. Now, while the nation of Israel has publicly opposed the invasion of the Ukraine, they have also refused to send weapons and technology when the Ukraine asked because they did not want to antagonize a Russia that has troops right on their border in Syria. In addition to that, Russia has all of their newest anti-aircraft. They have a whole line of anti-aircraft set up in Syria. Now, in their mind, they're saying it's to stop the dissidents in Syria. That's why they're there. I'm not saying they're not. I don't know. I don't know enough to know all that. But that posed a problem initially for Israel because Israel attacks terrorist groups in Syria who try to bring problems for Israel. And the way Israel does that is through their air force. And so they made a deal with Russia that said, we'll make sure we stay away from your technology. Just don't shoot us down while we're trying to take care of our sovereignty. They were fine. But if Russia all of a sudden changes their mind, that puts Israel at great risk. They can't use their superior air force if Russian anti-aircraft can shoot them down. So Israel has played it kind of in the middle with this whole Ukraine thing. Well, that changed recently. Just a few months ago, in September, Vladimir Putin met with Iran's president and stated, I quote, Russia and Iran are finalizing a new major treaty that will elevate bilateral relationship to the level of strategic partnership. 
Bilateral relationship simply means we recognize each other, we work together, you know, we talk. Strategic partnership means we are now allies. Why is that a problem for Israel? Well, Iran's government calls for the wiping of Israel off the map. Israel's concern about angering Russia did not outweigh their concern about a stronger Iran. And so just one month later in October, an Israeli official tweeted, there is no longer any doubt where Israel should stand in this bloody conflict, Russia and Ukraine. The time has come for Ukraine to receive military aid as well, just as the USA and NATO countries provide them. Former President, Russian President Dmitry Medvedev immediately responded by saying, and I quote, any Israeli effort to supply arms to Ukraine will destroy all diplomatic relations between our countries. This has led to the tensest atmosphere in Israeli relations with the Kremlin in decades. Why did Israel suddenly change their mind? Well, it's not just that Putin said that they're now allies. Iran at that point in time, they denied it at first, admitted it in December. Iran at that time began supplying Russia with drones and ballistic missiles to attack the Ukrainian targets. Over 300 ballistic missiles have been fired, Iranian missiles have been fired into the Ukraine by Russian military. In return, Russia is now training Iran's pilots on the Sukhoi Su-35, which is Russia's most advanced fighter jet, and they have plans to deliver the planes to Iran in 2023. This has compromised Israel's safety and security. They could not tolerate it. Now, again, am I saying that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is about to happen? No, I don't know that. But I think it is fair to say that the mystery of iniquity is at work seeking to bring that about. The only question is whether or not this falls in line with God's plan, whether or not He is drawing Russia down to Israel. The truth of the matter is the UN can say all they want, that we need peace. Other world leaders can talk about peace. But talk and ideas are cheap when there is no peace with God. I have spoken with two people who have connections to high-ranking military officials in the U.S. government this year. I don't go seeking these things out. One was a random phone call from someone who's doing clandestine operations in the Ukraine trying to get people out, missionaries out and stuff. And the other one, again, was just in a shock conversation with somebody I didn't even know was in the military until I sat down with them. But both said the same exact words to me in a matter of like weeks apart. And it was this, Will, I am hearing that we are closer to World War III than anyone realizes. In October, President Biden warned that Putin risked pulling the world into the book of Revelation. Our president said this, we have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now again, why bring this up? And certainly not to frighten you, I bring this up because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 11, and 12, because there are people out there who are going to start disseminating this information, and they are going to try to frighten you. I bring this up because you're going to hear more and more about this from people who claim to speak for Christ, and they are going to seek to make merchandise of you by troubling your heart. If you're here today and you're the one that told me, I just don't remember who told me this. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm not trying to call you out. I'm not trying to make fun of you. If you're watching online and you're that person, again, I, I don't remember who it was, so I'm not trying to call anyone out. But someone asked me recently, and they said, Will, someone in New York is telling me that the U.S. government is flooding New York with Chinese people, and they're going to take over New York. And, and they were concerned. To which I thought, why does that matter to you? 
you're a Christian. Like the first thought you should be in your mind is, great, more people to share the gospel with. Why do these things unsettle us? This world is not our home. There are going to be people out there, they're doing it already, they've been doing it for years, who in the name of Christ are going to try to make you suspect everyone around you of being your worst enemy. They're going to sell plans so you can protect yourself or supply you with weekly podcasts or YouTube updates so you can be in the know and you won't get run over by any of these things that are coming down the pike. People who are going to look at geopolitical solutions rather than point out a biblical response when we see these troubling things. Never do the Scriptures call us to panic or get angry or or feel compelled to do something about the mystery of iniquity. Never in the Scriptures are we called to hunker down or bunker down when the mystery of iniquity is on the move. Our call stands, and it is to make disciples by preaching the gospel and teaching the Word of God. I know I'm way late today. Tough. Tough. But Jesus, in another sermon, it's like the one in the Mount of Olives. In this other sermon, he taught us what to do, and we start seeing these things begin to happen. So I want to close with Luke 21. Some thoughts from Luke 21. In Luke 21, 28, Jesus tells us when, he's going to give us some commands but he's going to tell us when these commands really need to be something we pay attention to. In verse 28, he says, and when, you, when these things begin to come to pass, when are we to respond to the commands that he has here? When we see these things begin to come to pass. The word begin means to initiate a process. Listen, the church is not going to be here for the great tribulation, but we are going to see the mystery of iniquity at work. And when we do, Jesus gives us clear instructions on how to respond. Three things. He says, look up, lift up, and take heed. Look up, lift up, and take heed. He says, when you see these things begin to come to pass, then look up. The word, the phrase look up means to straighten up. And and the word is used not just to straighten up for straightening up, but it's opposed to being weighed down or bowed down with sorrow, worry, or fear. When you see these things come to pass, there's going to be people out there who want to put burdens on you, weigh you down with sadness, worry, or fear. And what Jesus says is instead of being weighed down by that, he says, look up. Straighten up. Guys, why are we surprised? Like, there are times I'll be on, I'm just checking out what's going on in the world. You read some article about some teacher up north, and they've got very large prosthetic breasts. It's a man. It's incredibly ridiculous looking and obviously designed to highlight their perverted ideas. I shouldn't look at that, and I mean, I should be troubled in the sense that that's wrong, but I shouldn't look at that and go, Really? The Bible told us these things are going to happen. Like, like, we knew this was coming at some point. Like, none of us should look and go, I didn't know that would happen. I, I never expected these things would happen. We knew it was coming. The last people who should be shocked or afraid or lose hope or forget our mission is us. 
The world might see peace crumbling and, or, or maybe just ignore the, worlds and, the wars and keep crying peace. The world might, like Jesus said, men's hearts failing them for fear. But the last people that should be reacting that way is us. We know what's happening. If anyone has clarity about what to do going forward, where to go from here, it's us. So look up. Secondly, lift up, he says, your heads. The word lift up, it means to demonstrate courage in the face of, of danger. It, it conjures the idea of an incoming storm that is going to hold you back. And you lift up your head and you go, I'm going to press on. It's a courageous decision. Being in the thick of persecution or seeing a culture turn against God is not a time to give up, nor is it a time to fight back. It's a time to get to work. And our great commission, our great job, our great task from Jesus is making disciples. Guys, our advertisement should not be less than the U.S. Postal Service. Rain or shine, snow or whatever, we need to get the job done. And so I ask you this morning, are you pleading with God for the lost souls who are in your circle of influence? Are you putting your gospel shoes on each day? Are you asking God to give you something specific to share with unbelievers if you bump into them like Paul did in Ephesians 6? Lord, give me, pray, pray for me, guy, Ephesians, that God would give me utterance. Are you daily asking for a fresh filling of God's Spirit to give you boldness to share the gospel? Listen, if there is any message that God has put on my heart for our church this year, is that God wants us to ramp up sharing our faith. That we need to be sharing our faith more than ever because we're out of time. It's not time is short, we're out of time. I cannot say if we're headed for Ezekiel 38 and 39 this year, but I don't want to be a lazy servant. I don't know how much time is left, and I want to take as many people to heaven with me as possible. And I believe God wants to move in our church that way too. The last thing he says, look up, lift up. Thirdly, take heed. He says in verse 34, and take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unawares. Overcharged with surfeiting now deals with our own, like our own mentality. It, it refers to being weighed down by a lack of moral restraint. Guys, there are plenty of temptations out there. He also says there's plenty of cares of this life. There are plenty of things to be weighed down about. And all those news blogs and podcasts, they're going to tell you what you should be anxious about and what you need to do to fix the problems in our society or how you need to prepare to not be run over by them. But dealing with those problems by disobeying the Lord is not the right answer. The answer to evil is not more evil. So be on alert for anyone and anything that would steal the simplicity of being a Christian from you, that would steal your love the simplicity of being a Christian is knowing and serving Jesus. Knowing Jesus and making him known. Amen? And so, I leave you with the words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I lied, it wasn't Luke 21. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 through 8. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. 
You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. Those who are drunk are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of our salvation. Faith, love, hope, these three things remain, right? It's our task, our mission. In 2023, let's be those who are sober in these troubling times, amen? amen. Keep our heads, stay on mission. Let's be those who put on our armor. In 2023, let's be those who put on love and share our faith. Let's all stand. Lord, you are so, so good. You have rescued us from hell. You've, you've indwelt our, our hearts, our lives. You're working in our families, our marriages. And yes, Lord, there's a lot of things in all those situations that could weigh us down. There's a lot of our own struggles with sin that could weigh us down. There's a lot in the world that could weigh us down. But you've called us to watch, to be sober, and not to allow that to happen. That when we see these things, to not allow them to weigh us down. And so, Lord, we choose this morning to look up to, you know, to, to, Lord, to not let these other voices, these false teachers and false prophets, Lord, diminish our love. And, Lord, we choose to endure, to not give up or hunker down, but, Lord, to go right into the storm with courage and to take as many people with us before you return. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. And even as there are some here saying, Lord, I want that for 2023, would you do that in our church? Lord, baptize us anew and afresh in your spirit. Give us boldness to be your witnesses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.